As we continue in our consideration of Luke's advent, we will be looking this morning at Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56, and we will begin by reading verses 39 and 40. These are the words of God. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now by the Spirit, open these words to us of these things which you accomplished 2,000 years ago, which shall result in the world being remade and the human race being remade. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we learned how the angel Gabriel visited Mary and told her that the power of the Almighty would overshadow her so that she, as a virgin, would conceive and bear the promised son of David, who would establish and rule over an everlasting kingdom. And he also told her that God had already worked a a forerunner miracle by causing her barren relative, Elizabeth, who was much older than Mary, to conceive a child in her old age. Now, upon hearing our news, our story opens this morning with Mary just having to go to see her relative, Elizabeth. She no doubt is very excited for Elizabeth. Elizabeth is a number of decades older than Mary. And so Elizabeth probably would have seemed like an aunt to Mary, an elderly aunt as she was growing up. And she knows the hardship and the sadness that Elizabeth has endured for so great a part of her life, and so she is so excited she has to go see her. Now, you have to remember that Mary lives way up in the north, up in the city of Nazareth in Galilee. So Galilee would have been in the north, and then as you move south, you would hit Samaria, and then if you went south all the way through Samaria, you would finally get down to Judea, and if you were going to go to the hill country, you would go all the way down to the southern part of Judea to Jerusalem. And you would keep going south. A few miles south of Jerusalem is where the hill country of Judah started. And, for example, Bethlehem, that was about eight miles south of Jerusalem, was in the hill country of Judah. So that is where Mary is going. So this is going to be a journey of at least a 100 miles if Mary just goes straight down through Samaria. But a lot of the devout Jews of that day would not go through Samaria. They would go around, which would make it a trip of around 130 miles. So you're talking about, for Mary, at least a five-day journey, if not a six- or seven-day, depending on which route that she took. And you have to remember that she's in the early stages of pregnancy. But she makes this journey in haste. She can't wait to see Elizabeth, which, of course, shows her love for her relative and her excitement over her pregnancy. When Mary arrives, she greets Elizabeth, and her greeting customarily would contain some token of respect, given the fact that Elizabeth was older than Mary. But what we find is that as soon as Mary begins to greet Elizabeth, 
Elizabeth, by the Holy Spirit, bursts out with a statement of honor for Mary and her child within. And we will learn also that Elizabeth's child within, who will be John the Baptist, also pays honor by leaping for joy. Verses 41 to 45. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. So Elizabeth is filled with joy, and so is her baby boy within, John, who although he cannot speak, He, by the Holy Spirit, does what he can do. And so he leaps within his mother's womb to express his joy at the presence of his Lord and Messiah. And we remember the angel Gabriel's words to Zacharias that his son would be filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb. And that is exactly what we see. And this is a testimony to us as Christian parents, if we have children in the womb, or if we have children who are very, very small, God is not limited. We are limited. The little child that we have is limited, but God is not limited in the work that he can do. God works in all directions all the time, and we need to remember that. And we need to believe as parents and act accordingly. And now before we go on in the story, I want to call your attention to one of the major features of Luke's Advent account. And that is how we constantly have and are going to have more and more as we go forward, all these various, very diverse people bearing witness to Messiah Jesus. And if you think about it, we've already had the angel Gabriel. So we've got Gabriel bearing witness both to Zacharias and to Mary. Now we have Elizabeth bearing witness. And we have her baby bearing witness within her womb. Coming up in just a minute, we're going to see Mary bearing witness to Jesus as Messiah Later on, we will have Zacharias upon the birth of his son, John. He will bear witness. And then finally, when Jesus is born, we're going to have a whole host of angels who are bearing witness. Then we're going to have shepherds who are bearing witness. And finally, when Jesus is presented to the Lord in the temple, not long after his birth, we're going to have two very elderly and very godly Jews, Simeon, and Anna, both independently bearing witness by the Holy Spirit. And finally, we have the Holy Spirit himself, which explains all of these various people bearing witness. It is the Spirit who is bearing witness of Christ. Jesus is going to talk about this later in his ministry, shortly before his crucifixion. 
He's going to explain to the disciples about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit was present in believers in the Old Testament. Nobody has ever believed in God or come to repentance apart from the Holy Spirit. But with the gift, with the, with the death of Christ, the resurrection, His ascension, His gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, there is an intensification of the Spirit and the Spirit is much more widespread through the whole of God's covenant people as opposed to a smattering of individuals here and there. But Jesus says in John fifteen twenty six, The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me and you also will bear witness. And that's exactly what we already see happening even before Jesus is born, all of these diverse people bearing witness to Jesus. And that then brings us to Mary's testimony of Jesus, her witness to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, which is in a form of a song. It's often called the uh, the Magnificat, based on Mary's opening line in verses 46 and 47. She says, My soul magnifies, that's where magnificent, magnificat comes from. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And this really gives us the theme for the entire song. Throughout, Mary is magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God her Savior. And as she does so, she is going to show us in summary form what it means for God to be Savior. So if we look at this song, we've already seen the opening line there which sets the theme. As we go forward, there's three parts. We're going to see Mary rejoicing in what God has done for her personally. Second, we're going to see Mary rejoicing over what God has done for the world. And then thirdly, we're going to see her rejoicing over what God has done for Israel. Now, I want us to look, first of all, a little bit out of sequence, though. I want us to look at the first part, what God has done for Mary. Then jump to the last part, because this is Hebrew-style poetry, which means you have an answering effect between the first and the last. That's why I want us to jump to the last, then look at what God has done for Israel, and then the result of that comes the middle part, what God has done for the world. So the first part is in verses 48 and 49, what God has done for Mary personally. He has regarded the low state, the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God has given Mary the blessing, the privilege, the honor of bearing the Messiah, the Savior and King of Israel and the world even as the angel Gabriel has said. Now, jumping to the third part, verses 54 and 55, Mary rejoices in what God has done for Israel. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he promised to the fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. 
Now you notice here, you see the parallels between what God has done for Mary and what God has done for Israel. And you notice that both Mary and Israel are called servants. She calls herself a lowly maidservant, and Israel is also called a servant. Both of them refer to what God has done in his mercy, and it refers to the promises that God made to the fathers. In other words, what is happening now, what is happening with Mary, what is happening with Israel as a whole, particularly the believing remnant of Israel, is all in fulfillment of everything God has been doing in the Old Testament. This is where it's leading to, to this point. And the result of this, the beneficiary is not just going to be Mary and Israel, but because Mary and Israel are servants, remember? So the result, the beneficiary of what God is doing for Mary and Israel, bringing everything to this point with the birth of Jesus, it's going to benefit the entire world. And that's what we see in the middle part of the song, which is verses 50 through 53. His mercy is on all those who fear him from generation to generation. This does not change. God has shown the strength of his arm by scattering the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and set away the rich Empty. And so we see here that with this salvation that is going forth to the whole world as a result of what God is doing for Mary and for Israel, this is not simply going to result in forgiveness of sins, um, going to heaven when we die in this life. This is going to result in a complete remaking of this fallen world. We will begin to see the theme that receiving the kingdom and inheriting the earth go together. Two sides of the same coin. So, Mary speaks in all of her rejoicing here of God's salvation, its effect upon the world. And you notice she talks about all these things as though they've already happened. She speaks of the future in past tense. Now, that's very common to Old Testament prophetic passages for a couple of reasons. First of all, the process of fulfillment had already begun at the time Mary is speaking here. Mary is already pregnant with Messiah Jesus. Elizabeth is already pregnant with his forerunner, John. But more importantly, it indicates the sureness of the prophecy. The prophecy's completion is just as sure as if it had already occurred. Because God doesn't try. He does. He never fails. Note also in the song how both uh, Mary and Israel, I pointed this out, are uh, servants. And God in his mercy does great things for both of them. And then that blesses and benefits the whole word. Now the word mercy we need to look at just a little bit here. Because our word mercy really doesn't capture the fullness of what is behind this in the Bible. 
The word mercy comes from the Hebrew word hesed. And it means a lot more than what we think of when we hear the word mercy. Basically, if we hear mercy, we tend to think of simply compassion, giving somebody something that they don't deserve, perhaps giving them a gift, having compassion upon them. That's included within the Hebrew concept there of said, but it means a lot more. If you put together all the passages of the Old Testament dealing with that concept and just boil it all down, what you end up with is this. God's said is his never-failing, covenant-keeping love. said is God's never-failing, covenant-keeping love. And you see how that's a much broader, much stronger concept than we would typically think of if we simply think of mercy. And so, when you hear this word mercy here, this Hebrew word said, what we're talking about is the love by which God bound himself to us by oath forever and fulfilled that oath even when it required him to become one of us, to die for us on the cross, to rise for us from the grave, to ascend into heaven for us and to reign for us. From heaven. Even when it required all of that, God did it because He loves us in a never failing covenant keeping way. This is all in fulfillment of God's promises to Israel and the fathers because you see, even when God was dealing with Abraham and going even further back, all the way back to His promise to Adam and Eve. Salvation to the world has always been where God is going. Galatians 3 verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham. What was preached to Abraham? The gospel. Saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Well, that was said to Abraham when God first called him. So what is God doing with Abraham? What is he promising to him from the first time he calls him? The gospel. The gospel to the world. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. In verse 29, if you are Christ, whether you are Jew or Gentile, if you are Christ by faith, you are Abraham's seed And you are heirs according to the promise. Now to understand Mary's song in a more applicatory way, and specifically what God is doing for the world, because he keeps speaking about basically turning the tables on everything, we need to understand this language of verses 50 to 53, where it talks about the lowly versus the mighty and the hungry versus the rich and turning everything upside down, because there's a lot of similar passages like that in Scripture. We need to dig into this because this kind of scriptural language is often misunderstood and misappropriated 
to further totalitarian revolutionary schemes which are designed to remake society with an enlightened elite in control to ensure equality of outcome among the ordinary. Not among the elites, among the ordinary, that's us. All in the name of fairness and justice. That's everywhere today in our modern society. These schemes view low and high, oppressed and privileged, purely in outward terms. Income, possessions, race, sex, and so forth. God does not do that in the Bible. For God, the fundamental issue is within, within the heart. And the fundamental issue is whether you bow before the living God in worship toward Him. Whether you make yourself low by bowing before the living God, or whether you refuse to bow and therefore make yourself high. In the Hebrew, so many of these words like poor, or afflicted, or humble, or meek, or proud, uh, or afflicted, uh, cluster around some Hebrew words that all have the concept of either being low or of being high. And the ones that focus on being low, many of them specifically have the idea of being bowed down. And so there's two ways to be bowed down. This is what we see in these scriptures. One way is to be bowed down by circumstances, hard circumstances, affliction, oppression, being mistreated, or just having difficult circumstances that push us down. They bow us down. But there's another way to be bowed down, and that is to bow yourself down in faith to the living God, as the one true God, to be bowed down before Him as God, to be His servant, to live life as He calls us to live. And in the Bible, the real key is whether you're one of the ones who in faith and in trust are bowing yourself down before the Almighty in worship. If you're bowed before the living God yourself, you may have circumstances that are also bowing you down because they're afflicting you. But if you're bowed down before the living God, He promises to lift you up over time. He is going to lift you up. On the other hand, whether or not you are bowed down from affliction and difficult circumstances, if you do not bow down before the living God, in other words, you lift yourself up, you make yourself high in the presence of the living God, you will not worship Him, well, of course, that's going to result in you lifting your heart up above other people as well. The kings of Israel, Deuteronomy 17, were required to write out the book of the covenant, that's the whole book of Deuteronomy, in their own handwriting, under the supervision of the priests, and read that book all the days of their life, so that they stayed bowed down before the living God. 
Because if they don't do that, God says you will lift up your heart above your brethren. That's the way it works. So for people who make themselves high, who will not bow down before the living God, God promises that he is going to bring them down. Okay? That's, this is the kind of a system that we see going on behind uh, the surface within the scriptures. So, look at Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. That is the fundamental issue in the Bible. Whether you make yourself low voluntarily of a good will in worship to the living God. But if you lift yourself up on high, then God is going to bring you down. Jesus talks about this. Matthew 23, verse 12. Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The word exalt literally means lift up. Whoever lifts themselves up will be humble, will be literally made low. But he who makes himself low... Implication being in worship to God will be lifted up on high. You see James and James 4, 6, Peter, 1 Peter 5, 5, taking up the same theme. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, the low. Now this word resists is interesting. It really has the idea of opposing. God opposes the proud. And the word literally means uh, to array in battle. So you've seen uh, these old ancient battle scenes where two armies will come and line up on the hills and form up and array themselves prior to the big battle. That's what it's saying. God arrays himself in battle against the proud. But he gives grace. He gives favor, unmerited favor to the humble. Now, can you think of any more important issue in life which you need to know? Any more important thing than to know whether God is arraying up in battle against you? Or is identifying with you and giving you unmerited favor? It is a key issue. Jesus himself lived, lived out these principles. Philippians 2, 8 through 10. Jesus humbled himself. He made himself low and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So with that background, let's consider the word poor in the Bible which is another one that clusters around this meaning, really, of being low. It's not directly a financial word. It may mean finances, but it doesn't directly mean that. So the poor um, can refer to finances, uh, but it is used by the Bible particularly to refer to those who suffer for righteousness' sake, those who are persecuted because of their relationship with the living God. Look at Psalm 34. This psalm is a psalm of David, and it contains a historical introduction, so we know exactly when this occurred. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, 
who drove him away and he departed. That took place in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now, David in this psalm knows that he was resourceful in feigning madness so that Abimelech drove him away. But in the final analysis, David knew that it was God in his mercy who delivered him. And so he's praising God in this psalm. And he says in verse 6, listen how he talks about himself. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now you have to remember, David at this point was the anointed king of Israel. He was the king by right because God anointed him. But he's not the king in actuality because Saul is a usurper at this point, and he is on the throne. So David is the anointed king by right. David did not come from a poor family. He came from a prominent family. David has an army of 600 fighting men following him. So he was not financially poor. But he calls himself poor because he was being persecuted for righteousness sake. Because Saul is trying to hunt him down and kill him. Look at Psalm 37. This is another psalm of David at verse 14. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy. And then he explains who he's he's talking about. To slay those who are of upright conduct. These are poor and needy. They may or may not be in financial straits. That's not the point. They are upright in conduct and are being persecuted for that reason. They're suffering for righteousness' sake. So he calls them poor and needy. Jesus does the same thing in the Beatitudes. The opening Beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. It is answered by the final Beatitude, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's verse 10. Jesus is telling us, Two different ways who inherits the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, that is to say, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And Jesus goes on to talk about this further in the next two verses. Blessed are you, he tells his disciples, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the disciples are considered poor because they are suffering persecution for Christ's sake. Now, think about Jesus' disciples. Now, it's possible that some of the twelve were financially poor or very modest in income. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. But they certainly weren't all that way. There are two sets of brothers Peter and Andrew, John and James, who came from families that owned fishing businesses on the Sea of Galilee. Now, that doesn't mean they were wealthy, but it almost certainly means they weren't poor. Their families could keep the business going while sparing these brothers to go and follow Jesus. And then we have Matthew, also known as Levi, 
who was a tax collector, which meant he was almost certainly very well off. Jesus did not call upon him to give up his wealth. We know that uh, the standard was, don't misuse your authority. The same thing John the Baptist told Roman centurions. He didn't tell them to leave the Roman army. He told them, don't misuse your authority. And so Matthew almost certainly was well off. So poor and needy and oppressed and this kind of biblical context are not primarily financial terms, but spiritual terms referring to those who are persecuted and suffering for righteousness' sake. Peter talks about the idea of this further in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, where he says that Lot was a oppressed. And this is a word that means to be pushed down and ground down. Lot was pushed down and ground down by the filthy conduct of the wicked in Sodom. That righteous man dwelling among them was tormented in his righteous soul day after day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. In other words, there's an impressive effect simply by having to live around certain sorts of wickedness. And if you feel it pushing down on you, oppressing you, I think we know this feeling today with the kind of things that are celebrated. Finally, look at Psalm 37. And at verse 9, here David is going to tell us three different ways who is going to inherit the earth. And by the way, Jesus quotes this psalm in the Beatitudes when he says, The meek shall inherit the earth. In verse 9, David tells us, Those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. In verse 11, he tells us, The meek shall inherit the earth. The meek meek literally means bowed down. Those who were bowed down before the living God, they shall inherit the earth. And then verse 22, those blessed by God shall inherit the earth. These are the same group of people. Those who are bowed down before the living God, they wait on the living God. They look to his promises. They live in light of his word and God blesses them. And they inherit the earth. So Mary in her song is saying that God, through the Messiah, in her womb, is now fulfilling the promises to cast down the unrighteous, both within Israel and without. The salvation and reign and kingdom of Christ will, over time, turn the tables and reverse All of the falling dynamics which they saw then and which we see still today. Those who believe in Christ and seek to obey him, the day comes when all those tables are turned, when those people are not slandered anymore, but praised. And those who believe in God, those who hate covetousness, as the way as God puts it in the Old Testament, those who hate covetousness, who love righteousness, They're not persecuted and oppressed, but they are applauded and elected. That would be a great thing. So coming back to our text in Luke, we're told in verse 56 that Mary remained with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned to her house up in Nazareth of Galilee. 
For three months, Mary and Elizabeth fellowship, comforted, rejoiced with one another. That was a wonderful time, no doubt. So as we close with a word of application, we see in the first century as we look forward as that century played itself out, that the risen and reigning Christ, when he ascended into heaven, he gave a demonstration, a small demonstration of how he will preside over all peoples going forward in history. Christ gave Israel and its leadership almost 40 years of gospel preaching, during which, unfortunately, the leadership doubled down in its persecution of the church. At the end of that time, Christ fulfilled the song of Mary. He turned the tables. He brought destruction upon apostate Jerusalem, and he exalted the Christian church, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, as the true people of God. For 40 years in that generation, the disciples had to stand for the gospel and suffer for righteousness in the face of a false gospel of Christless Judaism persecuting the church. We find ourselves in a similar situation today. We must stand and honor and worship Christ while we stand against another false gospel, and that is the false gospel of identity politics preached in support of another totalitarian movement to remake society underneath an enlightened elite. But we've already had an entire century of these kind of totalitarian, these kind of Tower of Babel movements. The entire 20th century was filled with it. And what we saw with every single one of these is that they never delivered what they promised. What they delivered was over 100 million dead. Not of enemy soldiers on the battlefield, their own citizens in their own country. Over 100 million dead. We must once again stand and suffer for righteousness' sake, but we do so knowing that the kingdom is ours and we shall inherit the earth. I will leave you with 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.